Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. And top of the morning to you, you are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR with Zane and... Jacob. So, yeah. so we're both going to be your presenters for Green Left Radio today. And before I, we go and announce what we have coming up in our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And that FreeCR and Green Left Radio is committed to supporting the fight back of First Nations people for land rights, sovereignty and justice. Yeah. Okay, so for our program today, we actually there's actually quite there's actually been a lot of a kind of announcements that's actually been coming from the government in in the kind of past week and in fact there's been actually a lot of kind of political discussion um in a, on a whole range of kind of issues. So this program, we're probably going to be focusing a lot on some of these kind of developments. For example, we have the whole Royal Commission to RoboDebt that is, I guess, still underway. And in fact, Zane has actually written a really good article about it. And we actually haven't had a chance to kind of go and discuss it in detail. And we'll be also potentially, hopefully, having Sue Bolton on as a guest as well to kind of discuss some of the details of that. And then we there's obviously been this big announcement um, where where the government has basically committed um, that um, committed to giving more than 19,000 refugees the ability to apply for a permanent visa. We're going to find out the significance of this announcement from speaking to Pamela Kerr, who is a long-time refugee advocate for more than 24 years. Um, but there's also obviously a lot of issues with the announcement itself, and we're going to be unpacking some of that as well. And then there's also um, a Green Left produced interview that we're going to be playing towards the end of the program with Zarabar Kamir, um, a Kurdish community emergency aid campaign in Australia. In fact, we did cover some of this um, cover this um, last week, but this is going to give more kind of detail in terms of, I guess, the impact that the, the earthquake has had on Turkey, but also the the, the problems of the discrimination of, of the Kurdish community and, and the impression, because... One of the things, as we sort of highlighted last week, was that you know the major, a lot of the major, a lot of the areas that have been impacted by the earthquake have been of Kurdish, um, Kurdish areas. So mm. there's got to, there's a lot of political issues to, to unpack there. Now, I want to kind of get guess a bit of kind of start a bit of I guess a discussion drawing on I guess some headline sort of news stories. Um, the first kind of story is this is I've been sort of seeing this on Twitter um, coming from kind of ALP sort of figures. Um, basically, we're going to hear this line a lot, actually, just to be clear. I think we're going to be hearing this line a lot. Now that we have um, the Albanese government in power, we're going to be basically hearing this very cliche line that the ALP like to use, which is that you can't make perfect um, the enemy of good. And this accusation is actually being thrown around um, towards um, 
towards the the Australian Greens in in, in Parliament. And one of the uh, what has what is actually currently happening right now is the the Labor Party is essentially um, um, is essentially pushing through um, a bill on housing. Now this bill is meant to sort of address the kind of inad um, the inadequacies of the housing market and actually you know speak to more um, build more affordable kind of housing. Now. The Greens have rightfully actually called out that this bill is actually, in a lot of ways, it's, it's completely inadequate. And in fact, part of their strategy is that they've actually, because the ALP have actually pushed this through in Parliament, like they've rushed the entire process, um, the Greens actually abstained from the vote. But um, that's not stopping um, the Labor Party um, from making completely baseless accusations that um, the Greens have actually voted against the housing bill, and and that they vote, and then they're lockstep with the Liberals. In fact, this is a very common um, common sort of accusation that they like to do. But there's a few issues here, and one of the issues is I think the Greens, in some sense, if the Greens were to vote against this housing bill, I probably wouldn't. I would actually kind of understand um, because. One of the contexts is, is the fact that there's more than 640,000, um, there's a shortage of 640,000 affordable homes in Australia. And of course, this is actually set to increase by 75,000 over the next five years. What this bill, and this is classic ALP in a lot of ways, this bill basically aims, is basically aimed to say, we're going to commit to building 30,000 homes in the next five years. Like, in a sense, this is a this is a bill that's actually not going to address anything in terms of the housing crisis. Um, it's essentially almost, in a sense, committing to the government to already what they're going to be doing anyway. There's already, like, you know, there's already a range of ha- um, affordable housing developments that get developed through, you know, the state and um, and developer um, sort of sort of relationships, etc. Not that they implement necessarily good policy, but it's like. This bill doesn't really do anything other than already sort of support a kind of almost existing policies that exist in most state governments and and local councils, which is actually where the Greens have been right to point out that we actually need a much more substantial bill. bill and in fact, the federal government actually needs to step in. There needs to be actually be, you know, hunt, hunt, far more public housing being built. There also needs to be much more affordable housing like, yeah, I think the, the Greens are basically proposing, you know, are essentially going to try and push to amend this bill in the up house to actually get more concessions out of the Labor Party. But I think it's completely ridiculous that the ALP are accusing the Greens of making the perfect the enemy of good on this basis. Yeah, totally. And I think it's important to remember that the ALP during the accord years in the 1980s implemented structural changes to the way that public housing is funded and my understanding is that uh, the states are primarily in charge of public housing however the states get most of their funding for that from the federal government and the the Hawke Keating government implemented a reform which led to a small one-off boost to investment in public housing but the trade-off is that 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 would not keep up with uh, inflation CPI, and it, and so it would kind of just stay at that level forever. So it meant a long-term decline in investment in public housing. Uh, and to me, this stands in contrast to 
and and Venezuela really comes to mind. Venezuela, you know, I don't want to paint Venezuela as this magical socialist utopia that is, um, you know, got rivers of chocolate flowing down the uh, proverbial streets and like it's Willy Wonka land or something. Venezuela has had its problems. Probably the biggest factor there is that it's subject to a US embargo, but there have been problems with bureaucracy and, and that we've discussed that and we will discuss it again. Um, however, one thing Venezuela has been able to do as a country with a similar population to Australia, with GDP much smaller, subject to a crushing economic embargo and flow on effects like inflation, Venezuela has been able to build well over a million, I think it's even like 3 million units of public housing over the last 15 years or so. Now, if Venezuela can achieve that, why on earth is Australia, one of the richest countries in the world by GDP, apparently only capable under a progressive federal Labor government, apparently only capable of building 30,000 units of public housing over a five-year period. It is a pathetically small number, and it's actually really pretty much in keeping with this sort of this ceiling on public housing investment that was implemented nearly 40 years ago by the, the Hawke Labor government in the 80s. Uh, it's just... It's, it's senseless. And there's no, there's no reason for it at all, apart from neoliberalism. We have a government which tries not to tax corporations and the rich too highly, and which therefore has an associated lower level of investment in, in public services, including housing. So, yeah, it's... The Greens are absolutely right to call this out, and I actually think most Greens supporters, are not all, but a lot of Greens supporters are immune to this to this political line that, that the Labor Party likes to take, which tries to portray the Greens as being in bed with the Liberals if they if they oppose a bill from a left-wing perspective. And they're doing it around climate policy as well. They're saying, oh, the Greens are uh, voting with Dutton. Well, Dutton's opposing it because they want zero climate action and zero public housing. And the Greens are opposing it because they want big improvements. And there's a big difference there. And the Labor Party bloody knows it. Mm, Absolutely. And um, one other kind of news story I kind of want to highlight as well is... um Poppy, this has sort of dominated the kind of headlines in in a kind of strange sort of way. And in fact, I sort of look at this story in terms of like, you know, capitalist sort of nations attempting to kind of flex their sort of military might. And also it's basically around pushing this whole normalisation of militarisation. But basically, um, it all started with um, with the spy balloon from China that basically got shot down um, by by the United States. Um yeah, basically, because they, they have um, they have um, air anti-aircraft missiles or what sorts. Well, they have all the advanced military technology. So it all started with shooting down this this balloon, um, which was apparently a spy balloon by 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 China. You know, could comment all about that, but you know. And then, 
hysterically, it's now kind of developed into this sort of thing where, okay, then Canada then decided to, um, then Canada shot down this other unidentified flying object, which we don't know what it is. Um, basically, there's sort of, it's all kind of been speculation. It's also opened up the, the door to all sorts of weird sort of conspiracies about alien invasions and then so on. But then, of course, now this is all then um, accumulated into, oh, yes, there's like, um, free flying objects have actually now been shot down by the United States. So now we're having oh, this... four. Oh, I think it was four. Oh, three or four. Oh. I'm, I'm kind of losing track. But basically, right now, we're getting this kind of... All the these major imperialist capitalist powers are getting kind of in hysterics or in, about these sort of unidentified flying objects that might be coming through US sort of airspace. Um, but I think there's one sort of little context as well, because... Starting with the, the shooting down of the China sort of spy balloon, it did, has created a context where now the West is now more vigilant about what they're allowing in their kind of airspace. But I also think there's another political element to this. And I think this is, it's very much a deliberate, deliberate on part of our, you know, imperialist sort of capitalist powers. They're attempting to kind of flex their sort of military sort of might to the kind of rest of the world. And just one recent announcement, Joe Biden just confirmed that, you know, the free spy, the free unidentified fine objects they shut down, they're definitely not connected to the, to the China spying incident. So they've, so they've consoled us with that, the public with that apparently, because they're trying to build this sort of hysteria around, around China. But it sort of just says something about how they attempt, the governments are attempting to kind of normalize this sort of militarization. They're trying to normalize this atmosphere of we're under constant threat. Um, and they're using you, um, the, the subject of UFOs, unidentified flying objects, as the kind of basis for this. And it's also, I think, a way, it's also a way for governments to also distract people from the actual issues that are happening. You know, for most ordinary people, most ordinary people are, are you know, are suffering from a cost of living crisis, they're suffering from high inflation, you know, insecure work, etc. And yet what all the, um, the US government is prepared to talk about is oh look at us we're we're, sh- we're we're keeping America safe by shooting down unidentified flying objects like I just think this is quite hysterical in quite a lot of ways and I think it just reflects the sort of normalization of militarization that the West um that the 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 West is attempting to kind of project. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I heard another theory which is that. Uh Capitalism is uh, about to land us in climate chaos, and so the aliens are coming to save us from ourselves. So uh, I, for one, welcome our new alien overlords. All right, we'll uh, just go to a little announcement, and then we're going to be speaking to Pamela Kerr uh, about these changes to the temporary protection visa system, or indeed abolishment of temporary protection visas by the current federal Labor government. Uh, There's been a lot of hysteria around that uh, from the the Liberal Party and and from their friends within the bureaucracy, in particular the Australian Border Force. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll talk to Pamela Kerr about what these changes mean, and uh, yeah, also I guess a bit of analysis of the hysteria in, in response. Uh, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. <laughs> 
with the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Shreve, Sovereignty and First Nations justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. And I saw it on the television. Here from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forbes, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to Parliament. 6.30pm Monday, February 20th at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we are very happy to be joined today by Pamela Kerr, um, who is a refugee activist who has actually been active in the movement for more than 24 years. And she's actually been doing kind of a lot of reading and, I guess, analysis and looking into a lot of the kind of fine detail about this um, announcement by the Albanese government, um, this new um, this refugee um, policy announcement by um, the Albanese government. Um, so and we're going to go and attempt to kind of unpack some of the implications that are coming out of this. So good morning, Pamela. Uh, good morning to you too. Um, so the first question I guess we want to kind of ask you is, I guess, can you give us a bit, just for our listeners, give us a bit of an overview of the ALP's recent announcement to grant more than 19,000 refugees the ability to apply for a permanent visa? And I guess, what is the significance of this announcement? And we'll obviously be going also into more kind of detail about who has been excluded. But yeah, we want to sort of hear about, I guess, a bit of an overview of what this announcement means in practical time terms. Yes, sure. Look, the um, advocacy movement for refugees uh, obviously was advocating um, way before the election with the Labor Party. And the one concession that we got was an agreement that those people who were on temporary and shed visas would get permanent visas. This fits into Labor philosophy that if you live in Australia for a long time, you're working here, that you should have the right to Australian citizenship. Now, so they promised it, and eight months later, they're starting the delivery. So that means that 19,000 people who currently are on TPVs, those temporary visas, and the SHEBs, um, are going to get what's called a resolution of status visa. Um, there isn't actually um, a, a, tempor- a permanent visa, but what happens is there are a whole range of visas with permanent status attached. So these people um, will able, be able then, when they've got this resolution of status visa, they will be permanent residents in the country, they can apply for citizenship, and most importantly, they can apply for family reunion. I mean, it's been heartbreaking. A lot of these people haven't seen their families for 10 years. Um, There are mothers and fathers separated from kids. There are kids and um, single parents in camps, some of the most awful places in the world, hoping and waiting one day to be reunited. So that's the good news. There is a dark side, of course, in that refugee policy is a total mess in this country. Home affairs has been a disaster. 
as we know from the pre the previous government. And so who's going to miss out? Well, there were 31,000 people who came by boat after, um, before 2013. And those people were in Australia. Um, so there's 12,000 people who are still waiting uh, for um, a visa, so for a temporary visa or a chef. Now, um, some of those people are in the courts. There's over 8,000 people, uh, cases in the courts, waiting for, um, to, for a hearing. The federal court is totally blocked up. A lot of the people we know don't even have a court date. Then there are others who are waiting at the AAT, that's the tribunal, which I hear today um, the attorney, new Attorney-General, uh, Minister Dreyfus, is, has determined the tribunal, the AAT tribunal, is going to be disbanded. It has been totally discredited. It's nothing more than a retirement home for failed politicians and failed LNP staffers amidst um, some qualified legal people. So it's a mixture of good people who know what it is to be a tribunal member making a serious decision about a refugee's claim and this mob of people who've been, who get this $450,000 a year job um, when they fail in the LNP party. Um, and so the way that it's being sold by the Labor government, they are disbanding the AAT and uh, setting up a new process, which needs to happen. So that's welcome. But in the meantime, you've got these thousands of people who are in limbo because they've got gone through a failed AAT process. Um, they are for in the courts which are chock-a-block. So that's the 31,000 who came 10 years ago. Amidst that 31,000 are the people who arrived on Christmas Island when the uh, Labor government, the then Labor government, reinstated the offshore process. Now, what happened was... Um, People were randomly selected. It was as random as the 18-year-olds being selected on their birth dates to go to Vietnam. A horrible process. So what happened is 1,146 people are their transitory persons, we call them, or we don't, the legal system calls them. Um, and they are in Australia because they were sent to Nauru and Manus and then they were transferred back here some under Medivac, a small number under Medivac, others for a whole range of reasons, mainly uh, medical care. Now, they have been sitting in Australia. Half of them are on community detention. That means they have a house, they have to sleep in it, they are, have a curfew, they get a small amount of money. Um, their children, once they turn 18, are not allowed to study they themselves are not allowed to study or work. So they're living in community detention in the community on the absolute margin. The other half were given bridging visas. But those bridging visas gave them work rights, but no support. So they, if they don't have a job, they don't eat. 
and they don't have shelter. And what's happened is the community groups like the Bridgetines and the ASRC and various small groups around Australia have supported those people um, by, well, the Bridgetines have paid their rent, pay their utilities and provide, make sure that they've got food to eat. Um, it is really appalling that the government has just stepped away from those people. They are asylum seekers. They're in the community. They were, um, some of them were, the 1,146 were found to be refugees in Nauru and Manus by Australian officials. They will, the um, Department of Immigration will say that was an overseas process by Nauru and Manus, but the fact is it was our officials who went over, determined they were refugees, and they are living in limbo. Um, they're, they're really in a mess. So we've got 19,000 are getting the visas and status, permanent status, but then we've got another 12,000 waiting in the wings for a flawed process. We've got this 1,146 transitory persons who've got no rights at all, no rights. And then we've got 2,000, estimated 2,000 lost souls who are out there in the community doing cash-in-hand work. They have no visa, no rights. Um, they are absolutely lost in a failed system. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to keep adding numbers, but then we've got another 900. These are people who've been here 10 years. Can you imagine? 10 years ago they arrived and they are still waiting for a primary decision. That's the first decision from the Immigration Department. Some of that number have not even had an interview. Hmm. That is how chaotic and flawed the whole system is. Um, we welcome the fact that 19,000 are getting permanent status, but we know that as advocates, we've got a, a big job ahead of us. Hmm. We are not out of the woods. We've got all these people living in limbo land. Um, we've got kids who've graduated from school, got scholarships, to university to study, and the department steps in with the bridging visa. They have to renew these every six months and puts no study rights on the visa. So these kids are effectively cut off from ever having a future. I've got young friends, women, who want to do aged care certificates. I mean, it's a grade three um, aged care certificate, and they're not allowed to do that study, to get that certificate, to do aged care. Here we are crying out for people to do this specialised work of aged care and we've got women who would love to do that work blocked. You know, Australia is cutting its nose off to spite itself. Um, I hope I haven't confused with all these numbers, but I, the core issue is the problem is not over the system is a mess and we've got, you look at the Labor Party who kept their promise and what did I see? Last night, the lead issue on the ABC News 
boat surge. Hmm. Yeah, I actually LSD saw the news yesterday and it was exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, Pamela, because in theory, uh, state and federal government bureaucracies are meant to be apolitical. Uh, they're not meant to take sides in politics, but we've got border force very publicly talking about sending a surge of people to make sure there's not a, a wave of new boats, and if there is, we've got capacity to kind of turn them back and stop them. And is this, in your opinion, um, does this represent a politicisation of a of a public body where it's basically playing this liberal stop the boats hysteria line? Yes, the word hysteria you used in the previous around the militarisation, and it is absolutely apt. There is hysteria. You can see why Labor are so nervous about making change because they've got not only the politics, they've also got mainstream media, the crazy media, united. The the only thing the LNP can fight on at the moment because they've made such a mess of um, government for the last nine years is to scream about boats. They created the hysteria. We don't even talk about people. We don't mm. talk about refugees. Mm. We talk about a boat. It is a, a, a sort of symbol of fear. Um, and this is why we, I, I believe, we need a Royal Commission. Um, I know we've had a million Royal Commissions in things, but look at RoboDebt. How was that allowed to continue? Not only was it illegal, it was cruel, it was killing people, and it's only with the Royal Commission that the full uh, force brutality comes through. And I think, um, in the long run, the only way we'll turn this policy around, and we need to turn it around, this is not who a lot of Australians want to be, is to look Put the lens on the cruelty. I mean, look at the deaths in detention. Look at the people who died offshore because they couldn't get medical care. These are really shameful things that have happened. Mm. Look at the current persecution of people on temporary visas and chefs and, and people who've got no visa. Um, so in the long run, um, it's been uh, uh, politicised. It's so toxic. You need a Royal Commission to unpack it. But in the meantime, that's not going to happen in a hurry. We advocates have to keep our shoulder to the wheel. We can't let the public think, oh, they gave 19,000 visas, it's all over. We can't let them think that because it is not. We are face-to-face with people who are suffering in Australia every day because their claims haven't been uh, settled, they haven't been recognised. We look, where are the boats likely to come from? Well, Sri Lanka. Let's face it. It's out there in the ocean. It's supposed, uh, it's a a nasty three-week trip. But those people in Sri Lanka, I'm hearing from my Sri Lankan friends that the torture of Tamils started again. Um, The uh, vans picking up people, uh, there are very good reasons why people want to get out of Sri Lanka. They're not only the economic reasons, they're the p- politics. Um, so, of course, our border forces out there combing the ocean. Um, but at the same time, you've got this story that somehow those people who are desperate 
um, to survive, know the intricacies of the immigration system. Even Australians don't know the intricacies and that they know that if you come to Australia, you might one day get a permanent visa. So they're going to get on a boat. It, it is total hysteria. It doesn't make sense. Um, I don't... I mean, on one way, we're happy that we got the 19,000. We want to see it happen. It'll take 12 months. Oh, one important thing people need to know is there is no need for those 19,000 to go to immigration agents and pay heaps of money, thousands of dollars. There is no need for them to pay to get these ROS visas. These visas, um, they will need legal assistance. Um, they can get it through legal, a refugee legal, through the ASRC. They're free services. They're qualified, experienced lawyers, um, and they should seek legal advice before they fill in the papers because it, it it may it's supposed to be a simple process, but as we know with immigration, it can get very fraught. It can get muddled up. So the message I give to people is you don't have to pay. There are free services. Refugee Legal is lined up, um, ready to assist people, and they should avail themselves of that service, especially those from New South Wales, uh, from South Australia and Victoria, Refugee Legal. Um, and then in uh, New South Wales, RACS and the other states are lining up so that there will be free uh, legal assistance for everybody. Hmm. And um, I want to go into guess the next kind of to- the next sort of angle. Um, and I've known that you've um, been commenting a guess on this, but I guess what can you tell us a bit about you know this new 420 million contract that the ALP government has undertaken for the offshore detention centre in Nauru? And actually, probably one thing that would be useful if you obviously have knowledge of it is what is really the what is really the current context around offshore detention centres because. From my understanding, and I guess a lot of common sense, common sort of understanding, a lot of these offshore detention centres are, in a sense, essentially closed. But of course, the fact that the government is, you know, basically has renewed a certain contract means that there is possibly plans to use it again. What are, What is the comments on the, the complexity of some of that situation right now? I wish I could tell you. I don't think anybody understands why. Um, I, we know that the the uh, Labor government is um, nervous and they will not close the offshore centres. They've got them on so-called standby. There's nobody actually in um, a locked camp in Nauru at the moment. And, of course, we know that the PNG one was found illegal, so they can't go back there. But um, they're afraid to close it down, and that's why another reason why I think we need a Royal Commission, because... Although there have been a lot of reports um, and a lot of information, Australian people don't realise the full cruelty of the, the offshore system. What those people were put through, uh, it, it just it needs to be exposed to the open air because nobody could understand that an Australian government could do this to people. Um, the worry about the uh, Nauru situation is are they going to keep victims there, just, you know, political um, uh, victims uh, to say that it's still open? It, it's sort of pointless. Um, 
the escape from offshore is supposed to be provided through third country. We've heard this all the time. I would say there are no third countries anymore. You look at the 1,200-person deal to America. They've still got 200 places. Nobody's gone to America since December. Even then, it was two people. So the idea of sending people to the United States is pretty much dead. They're just keeping it there as an option. Canada, 11 people have gone to Canada. Those people who went to Canada got there by virtue of the generosity of community groups here. Uh, I know of one group, they raised $40,000 to get a family to Canada, and God bless them for doing it. Um, But it's not possible for people to raise that amount of money. It's also very clear the Canadians are not going to take Australia's refugees. Um, So that's Canada. And then the third option is New Zealand. Well, we've seen a handful get to New Zealand. Um, I think there were five or six over Christmas and a couple more in January. The New Zealand deal is not yet um, completely operational. We don't know what's going to happen. And in any case, it's only 150 a year. You've heard the numbers of people that we've got in our community and the numbers offshore there aren't enough places in New Zealand. They're, they've said they will take 150 a year for four years. That's 600 people. I mean, it's horrible to talk about people like um, commodities, but the fact is Australia has a responsibility to the refugees who came here, and we've got to face up to it. Hmm. And as you've pointed out, refugees are workers, and, like... We need yes. workers. Like it's, it's having a law that denies ridiculous. people the right to work. Hmm. Yeah, it's purely about scapegoating a a section of the population to yes. sort of whip up nationalism and strike fear into the rest of the population. Like you behave yourselves, because we're capable of being pretty nasty. Uh, yes, and and people do know that, and that's why it's important for us to spread the word amongst ordinary Australians. I mean, the more people get to know refugee families and uh, work alongside them, they go to school with their kids, they, and then they sit down and have a cup of tea and listen to their stories. And I hear people, how could this be? How could we have done this to people? Well, it's, you know, to me, it's a scandal on a scale with the stolen children generation. I'm old enough. That was happening in my lifetime. Um, it is shocking to think that in 1996 we finally got a royal commission, and it and it still has taken all these years to open people's eyes to what we did to Aboriginal children and families. Why? Based on their colour. You know, it's it is. And this is the, the same. It's it's all about skin colour. Yeah. Yeah, it's about uh, you're not one of us. Hmm. You're another nationality. You know, the first and the last people in this country have been victimised politically, and it's time it stopped. Absolutely. And um, we're probably got a bit now out of time now, but um, you've, this is um, this has been a fantastic interview, um, Pamela. I think you've given us a lot of useful kind of information in terms of unpacking the announcement, especially since this is kind of a discussion that's that's very much not even getting reported in the media. In fact, you know, I even read an article in the Guardian um, about this announcement, and even the Guardian, you know, which is generally 
quite progressive on on this issue, um, didn't even sort of make mention of all these sort of nuances and sort of detail um, about who was excluded from this announcement and all all these other um, aspects. But I guess I want to, um, I guess I want to kind of hear, I guess your kind of final comments, um, especially in terms of the implications this might have for refugee activists. This new announcement. I mean, you've, um, you've sort of implied that you know we could, we should be, there should be a demand for a royal commission. But what are some of the other sort of demands um, that people need to be looking towards? I mean, obviously the refugee movement is pretty clear on the question of. You know, abolishing the boat turnback policy, etc. Those are all those are all important issues, obviously as well. But obviously, this the this announcement also has lots of implications in terms of um, terms of campaigners as well. Look, um, the mainstream media. This is secret business. Um, you see that uh, the uh, Murdoch media get their information direct from um, Home Affairs uh, and um, Border Force uh, PR releases. Um, it, it's it's really hard to unpack all this information. I guess I'd say to the uh, um, activist and advocacy community, um, our, game, our fight is not over. Uh, we've got Palm Sunday coming up on the 2nd of April. Um, that's the biggest uh, refugee rally of the year. Um, it brings together a whole range of people from the activist community, from the church communities, from the faith communities, um, and from the refugee communities. So I'd say be there, be there, be counted. The other thing that's coming up later in the year is the Labour um, conference in Brisbane in August, I believe. Uh, that's where policy is made. Uh, we need to be sitting down and working out what... Um, with the refugees and with the asylum seekers, what are the things that are important to them and taking that to the conference as best we can through the unions, through the delegates. Um, and in, actually, I, I'd like to say our fight is over. It's not. It's not. We, If we care, we've got to stand up and be counted still. And um, the gains we've made have only been made because activists and advocates have been out on the streets, have been in the minister's office, have been um, advocating through their political um, affiliations. These things have only happened because of your fight, um, and we've got to keep it up. All right. Thank you very much, um, um, Pamela. I think this has been a very good interview in terms of unpacking the, the recent um, Albanese announcement, um, refugee announcement. Yeah, thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855M, and we're just speaking to Pamela Kerr, who is, who's been a long-time refugee advocate for more than 24 years. Now, probably the next thing we're going to go and try and get to, we'll probably try and get um, Sue Bolton on the line, um, Mary Beck, um, counsellor, and probably have a bit of a discussion between, actually, I want to, we'll hear from what, um, from our presenter Zane, actually, what Zane thinks. We want to sort of have a bit of a discussion to kind of unpack a bit some of the stuff around Robodep, because we haven't actually had, we sort of, we sort of had a bit of a discussion where we mentioned briefly that Alan Tudge had resigned, but we haven't necessarily gone into, I guess, full kind of detail. So mm-hmm. we'll just go play a quick few announcements and get, um, get our, get Sue Bolton in line. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. 
Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, Regardless of label or no label at all, they're partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax-deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. Uh, welcome back. You are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR, and it is quarter to eight in the morning. Uh, we were perhaps going to try and uh, raise Mary Beck Councillor um, Sue Bolton, but um, we're having a bit of trouble getting on to Sue. And um, so, yeah, we might just have a bit of a yarn about the kind of Robodet Royal Commission and um, some issues surrounding that. Um, I've got an article at uh, greenleft.org.au at the moment about this and uh, there's a bit of other coverage at the at green left as well looking at uh, robo debt probably the, the the two main points that I tried to make in my article was I guess looking at some of the media um coverage of the robo debt royal commission because some of the media coverage sort of tries to just portray the former Liberal government and the bureaucracy as just bumbling fools, like, oh, gee, that's silly. They implemented this illegal debt scam by accident. Whoops. Gee, how could they be so incompetent? I think that's a really naive way of looking at this and just blatantly inaccurate and, and a, a real misreading of the situation. Uh, the other The other coverage 
the other main, I guess, line that we've seen in mainstream media coverage of road debt is, oh, uh, yeah, they knew it was the wrong thing to do, but they were trying to raise money to boost the budget bottom line, and so that's why they did this unethical thing. I also think that misses the point of robo-debt because if anything, well, first and foremost, like when robo-debt was eventually proved to be illegal, and in my opinion, they knew it was illegal the whole way, um, when it was proved to be illegal, uh, they had to refund all those robo-debts anyway. So there's not actually um, a real revenue boost for the federal government. I guess they got a bit of a short-term boost, but then they had to refund all that money. In my opinion, the main purpose of robo-debt, and it's the same purpose as having a low payment to begin with, it's the same reason as making people go and do these inane work-for-the-dole tasks and go to these just patronising and pointless meetings with job network providers. It's all about uh, attacking the self-worth of unemployed people, people who've been locked out uh, of the capitalist job market. Uh, we know that unemployment is a structural feature of capitalism. It's not a reflection on the worker who is unemployed. It is a reflection of how the system works. And ultimately, having this pool of tormented unemployed people drives wages down because once people have been through that, been through the ringer of being on Centrelink and a hell of a lot of people, when they first, you know, move out of home, maybe they go to uni or TAFE and they're on Oz Study or some sort of Centrelink payment, and then maybe in their uh, early working career, we know that youth unemployment is really high. So a lot of workers at the start of their working life uh, on Centrelink, they have to deal with all this patronising rubbish. They may get a robo-debt in this instance, and the net effect of that is that workers will then take whatever job they can find to escape the grasp of Centrelink. Even if the pay is really low, even if the pay is below award wages, hey, at least I'm not on Centrelink. At least I'm not going to get my payment cut off. At least I'm not beholden to this really steely, harsh bureaucracy that will just cut you off and send you in spiralling into poverty uh, because you've missed some appointment. Like we've all heard stories of people who go to a job interview. They're trying to do the right thing. They let Centrelink know, oh, sorry, I can't come to your stupid, pointless meeting because I've got an interview for an actual job. And how does Centrelink respond? They cut people off their payment. Uh, it's it's really disgusting. And the, the overall effect is it makes people want to accept low-paying jobs. It makes people put up with poor treatment at work, all sorts of harassment, unsafe work conditions because they know the alternative is to be thrown back into that horrible situation of, of being on Centrelink. And even for workers who've either not been on Centrelink before or who maybe have not been on Centrelink for 20 or 30 or 40 years and it's kind of a distant memory, they still know, they still have friends or family who are on Centrelink and they know that they live in this crushing poverty, they live with this patronising assaults on their self-worth and so the the impact of driving down wages affects not only those who are directly on Centrelink right now and not only those who were on Centrelink a short time ago or in the last few years all workers 
like probably you know not obviously not high paid workers who are on 200 grand a year or something but but probably anyone on the medium wage of, of 50 or 60 or 70 grand or whatever they know that they want to hang on to their job and 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 not speak up and not be a troublemaker and turn a blind eye to their own exploitation because the alternative is this horrible um undignified experience when you're on Centrelink. And and in the case of RoboDot, even if you haven't been on Centrelink for five years, they'll come hunting you down like, oh, you're in trouble. (laughs) You committed the crime of claiming an unemployment benefit or a study benefit five years ago, and now we're going to hit you with this completely fraudulently made-up debt to sort of whip you and punish, punish you for having committed the crime of of claimed a welfare payment. And I think there's um I think that's that there's a some other kind of takeaway points as well from this as well, but it's also I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things in this robo debt scheme that actually says I think a lot about the kind of nature of bureaucratization under the capitalist system, but also where kind of neoliberalization is kind of going in terms of um, well, neoliberalism in a sense, where is it sort of going in terms of the atomization of, of kind of ordinary people kind of under our system? And in fact, I just have one sort of funny example. Um, but you're kind of noticing this in, you know, you're seeing the advert of the kind of gig economy kind of work where, you know, there's a lot of bureaucratization in, in how individual kind of workers even operate um, in a kind of employer-employee sort of relationship. Mm. And I even noticed this in 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 my in one workplace where basically there was a situation once um where basically all the staffing um had um basically gotten re had been reallocated um to kind of different sort of workplaces different um areas and and basically what had had actually happened is basically the company decided that they were going to go put everything through a system that would just reallocate workers and it all just happened automatically <laughs> and it happened in such a way that basically some people got put into um into areas like basically got put into different work uh, open workplace that wasn't even suitable for where they were able to kind of work and of course it also frustrated um a lot of the workers um because basically a lot of the workers who are used to working together etc weren't able to, weren't able to work together anymore so it's sort of like there's almost this sort of disconnect between, um, and the RoboDap scheme is, I think, a perfect kind of example of that. And also, I think one other takeaway thing, and this is where, um, well, where we're sort of hoping to get Sue Bolton on, but Sue Bolton has actually written about this, um, in one of her articles on RoboDap, which is titled, um, RoboDap Fiasco Reveals That Centrelink Workers Opposed It. Now, I think this is a good sort of takeaway point that has sort of come out of the Royal Commission because, I guess one of our sort of understandings of of how the public sector works is generally you have a very kind of close sort of relationship between, you know, management, the senior sort of officials and the government itself. The senior sort of officials of, of any sort of public sector kind of bureaucracy are generally the ones who are implementing the kind of worst sort of um, worst sort of elements of any sort of government policy. And they're generally quite complicit in in implementing the policy. That's why they're sort of like there's often a principle amongst um, amongst socialists or left wing activists who might work within the public sector that they will only sort of accept 
working in the sort of lower sort of end of the scale. They'll never accept working in management because if you work in management, you actually have to compromise your values as a mm. left-wing person and as an activist. But one of the most interesting things about what the the Royal Commission revealed was there were a lot of um rank a lot of low order Centrelink workers that actually were trying to do their best to help ordinary people deal with the robo debt system. Mm. Like they were trying to do their best with all their ability to actually, you know, actually get come to a solution that was actually just. And it actually just shows the kind of solidarity that it's actually that workers actually naturally have um for each other. And that and this is where the robo-debt scheme deliberately attempted to kind of break up that kind of solidarity. Because in a sense, for a lot of the, the Centrelink workers, um, you know, the ones who are like taking the cause, etc., I at the end of the day, I, I you know that deep down they just want the best for, you know, the people that they're servicing. Um, well, I think there's two things. So there was very early on in, in the robo-debt scheme, there was reviews into the legality of it. And those reviews found, no, it's not legal. You can't put the burden of disproving that someone's got a debt on the person that you're sending that debt to. The state is a model litigant, and so the state has to abide by the most ethical principles if they want to raise debts, including to welfare recipients. So very early on, reviews found that it was unlawful and... We know in the workplace, word travels around the workers. So a lot of those lower-level Centrelink workers who are the ones on the phone to these really distressed people who've been sent robo-debts, they're going to know in the back of their mind, this is really wrong what we're doing. We're trying to give people illegal debts and make them pay it. At the same time, the Centrelink bureaucracy, the senior, the higher-ups, instructed those very staff... You are not allowed to tell people how to disprove their debts. So if you're on the phone and you take one look and you can see, oh, Jacob was working for Broadmeadows McDonald's. However, the business name that Broadmeadows McDonald's trades under is actually Falling Meadow Crazy Burger Proprietary Limited. Now, Jacob has put down Broadmeadows McDonald's on his wages that he has declared to Centrelink, instead of putting down Falling Meadow Crazy Burger Joint Limited, and so the robo-debt has duplicated that income. Jacob declared $300 from of income for that fortnight from Broadmeadow McDonald's, but he didn't declare this other $300 from Falling Meadow Crazy Burger Joint Proprietary Limited. Now, the Centrelink staffer looks at those and is like, oh, okay, the computer has duplicated Jacob's income. He has actually declared that $300, but the computer thinks that he's got this other $300 from some other group, but they're actually the same income, and he has declared it. Now, the higher-ups in the Centrelink bureaucracy have said to the lower-down staff, you are not allowed to draw this to the attention of the person that you are on the phone to. Mm -hmm. It is up to them to figure that out, and if they are not a legal expert, if they don't know how robo-debt works, if they don't know the intricacies of the difference between a trading name and the, the, the public-facing name of this business, you are not allowed to draw that to their attention. So, and, and from the look of it, from the sound of this Royal Commission, a lot of those Centrelink staff just kind of ignored or, or you know, worked around that directive from their higher-ups 
and did in fact coach people about look if you want to get out of this you need to you, you need to point out that this is is incorrect and this is wrong so yeah it's it's and and in doing that those staff have, have put their jobs on the line mm. so yeah it's 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 impressive the solidarity and it's disgusting that those staff were put in a position where they were like micromanaged by senior Centrelink management, mm. you're not to provide any help to these people. Mm. It's our job to kick the crap out of them and remind them that they are dirt, that they are nothing. Mm. Yeah. Well, we might conclude this kind of discussion. I think this is a very this been a very um, good kind of discussion, kind of talking about the the robo debt, reflecting a bit on the robo debt scheme. We might just go play a quick announcement, and it's actually time to go into the green left kind of activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. With the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Treaty, Sovereignty and First Nations Justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. And I saw it on the television. Hear from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Thorpe, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to Parliament. 6.30pm Monday, February 20th at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. And yes, you've just been hearing a bit of shameless self-promotion there from uh, our very own Jacob. Uh, and that forum is coming up on Tuesday evening. No, Monday. Monday. Yep. Ah, my mistake. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, just to get where now it is time for the green left kind of activist calendar. And, um, just want to highlight a, a number of, um, number of things, um, that are coming from the activist calendar. Now, one thing I'll just highlight is, um, on Thursday, um, there is actually now a First Nations documentary that has, um, just come out in cinemas and you can see it at the Cinema Nova. It is We Are Still Here. Um, and I'm pretty sure the documentary is basically supposed to sort of highlight, you know, kind of has kind of a mix of sort of different footage of, of First Nations of activism and all kind of around the world. And I think it's basically sort of going... Um, it's basically one of those um, documentaries that kind of celebrates the fact that, you know, First Nations people all around the world are still fighting, they're still here, and they're, and they're, and they're not going to stop. So I think that will probably be a very good documentary to kind of watch. I haven't seen it myself. I was potentially going to try and see it at the film festival, but I wasn't able to, um, yeah, just get uh, get around to it. Um, there's obviously on Monday, February the 20th, there's the public forum that you just um, heard me announce, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, um, with Lydia Thorpe and Gary Murray. Um, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at, at the Drill Hall, just right near the Multicultural Hub, and the entrance is from the Ferry Street side on 26 Ferry Street in the city. Well, I'm looking forward to that because there's been... It's died down <clears throat> It's died down a little bit now, but of course Lydia Thorpe left the Australian Greens, and there was a big controversy around that, and I think there's been a lot of actually sort of like straw manning or, or 
kind of like misrepresenting Lydia Thorpe's views. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Lydia Thorpe herself about her position on The Voice and her criticisms of mm. that. Um, the next thing to note is there's going to be a radical book sale, 25% off everything, um, at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city. Now, this will have new books, sell, secondhand and sales books, t-shirts, badges, and it's, and it's going to be op- the opening hours will be Saturdays, um, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sundays will be closed, but Mondays, Fridays will be, um, will be open from, um, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. So yeah, I think that will be quite a good, um, if you're looking to get boost, um, boost up your book collection. That would probably be a good kind of event to go to. Um, the next event is on Saturday, February the 25th. There's going to be a rally. Migrants and refugees are welcome. Nazi gyms and Nazi gyms are not. And that's going to be, organ- that's organised by a campaign against race, um, um, race, calf campaign against racism and fascism. And the rally has been called in response to the fact that there's actually, there has been some far right elements discovered, um, actually organizing through, through gyms. Um, and, and of course, in West Sunshine of all places, and you know, mm. the Western suburbs are a very like culturally kind of diverse sort of area. So mm. I think there's very much, I think, an important need to, to build a kind of anti-racist demonstration and basically say racism is not welcome here and also taking up the politics of, of the far right and confronting it kind of head on. Yeah, I think it's really intimidation and I, I, I would, I would claim that it's quite deliberate that neo-Nazis have chosen sunshine of all places to have their little gym yeah. where they go and work out and be macho dickheads in a group. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. Inappropriate, not welcome. Get the hell out of sunshine and stop yeah. harassing the migrant community. Yeah, because here's a, just a bit of a joke. They certainly aren't organising out of the gyms in Brighton of all places. No, <laughs> but probably a lot of them live. Uh, I, I'm guessing not a great deal of those neo Nazis actually live in sunshine. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Um, now, the next, the next event to highlight is this is a, a re- event by Refugee Action Collective, ju- um, public forum justice for victims of the fast track process. And now this is actually a forum that will actually kind of delve into one particular thing, because there was one area that actually Pamela Kerr actually gave in her kind of interview. Um, so this, this will be a f- public forum by Refugee Action Collective will actually kind of focus on that, so on one kind of particular kind of issue around refugees. Um, and then on Thursday, March the 9th, um, there's going to be, I can't swear at this, but there's a, um, Alison Pennington, who we've actually had on our program before, has actually written a new book called Generation F, <laughs> or I think it's, yeah, it's supposed to be, you can kind of fill in the gaps kind of there. Um, it's going to be happening at 6.30pm on Thursday, March 19th at the Solidarity Hall at Trades Hall. And then on Tuesday, March the 14th, um, um, Green Left and Social Science are organising a public forum called, titled Fighting for Trans Rights Today, Challenging the Right Wing Hysteria. And so it's going to be happening at 6.30pm with dinner from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street. Um, and then the last two just announcements I'll just note is there's going to be a National Day of Climate Action on Friday um, the 17th of March at 2pm at the State Library. And then on Saturday, March the 18th, there's going to be two rallies, um, Call for Peace, Truth Not War, Stop ACAS's War Alliance at 1pm at um, State Library. And then there'll be another rally, protest to speak into a right-wing UK transphobe, Kelly J. Keane. So yeah, those are just some of the, some of the events that, um, that we've kind of highlighted so far. Um, but I guess, um, we might go into playing a quick announcement and then I'll introduce the next kind of recording that we're going to, or recording interview we'll play. 
If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're going to play a recording and of this interview, which you can actually view online on the Green Left website. Um, and it's titled Turkish Dictator Aragon um, Weaponizes Earthquake Disaster Against the Kurds. And so this is an interview with, um, with, um, with Zarabar Kamiri, um, who is a Kurdish community emergency aid campaign in Australia, who will be kind of be unpacking, you know, what is essentially in that title. So, yeah. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. It's been a week since the terrible earthquakes hit uh, southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. And yet we are seeing these harrowing images still coming true, having all these reports that there are these badly affected communities that are still not getting the aid that they need. Um, you know, what's the reason for this? A huge, huge, a vast majority of the populations, the communities who have been affected by the earthquakes, both in Syria and in Turkey, are actually Kurdish communities. So we knew from the beginning that because of this fact, unfortunately, we could anticipate that any response from the Turkish government, given who they are and what they, what their ideology and what their, their, I guess, occupation mindset has been for as long as they've existed. We knew that any response that they have to these tragedies will be politically cynical at best. So what we've seen is, is and you're completely right, and, you know, it's it's been, yeah, like you said, nearly a week now. Um, we're still getting reports, and these aren't just hearsay. These aren't just rumours. We've got video testimony from victims on the ground, from survivors, people's families who have to date not seen any sign, any official sign of the Turkish government. So no search and rescue teams, no aid coming to them. We've had some people in some of the most... You know, horrifically affected areas right at the epicenter of these earthquakes. So including, um, in Hatay who, you know, were pleading, pleading for some assistance where there was none. People could, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely harrowing. Um, and you don't ever become any more desensitized to these things, but we've, we've, we've got video testimony and these are our community's relatives and family members talking about how, you know, they can still hear their siblings, they can still hear their kids. And, you know, obviously this has been the, in especially the first few days, um, they could hear their voices from the rubble. They could see movement in their heads, but there's, there's, there's no way for, to help them. And so they've, they've been there in agonizing pain, um, waiting for some official 
you know, some some sign of uh, official rescue, official support from the state, which has sadly been completely non-existent um, in a lot of these areas. So it's it's important to realise that this has been the case. Um, and it's instead of instead of taking some of the criticism that's that's been allowed to come out that's sort of, sort of surfaced despite bans on there's also been bans on uh, Twitter. Erdogan has also banned the use of they they've blocked the internet in a lot of different places. So really, really trying to take a stronghold on any communication going in and out um, and cutting really vital vital networks, vital platforms for people to to at least um, because that's what they've been left to coordinate between themselves and among them amongst themselves coordinate and organize rescue. So people would put geolocations of family members, for instance, and people would use these these platforms to get mm. the word out there to, to mm. undertake all sorts of extremely critical um, both awareness raising but also really uh, pragmatic, you know, solutions to, to some of these problems on the ground um, because of the lack of official state support. Um, it's been left to the residents. So they've banned Twitter. They've, they've um, blocked access to, uh, I think, YouTube for a while as well. They've blocked access to in- the Internet, um, whole scale in a lot of areas. Um, and some of the criticism that has sort of made it through instead of taking heed and actually realizing that this is, this is, you know, this is going to cost them dearly. Um, they've further clamped down on those communications. They've further clamped down on their lack of, uh, resources, their lack of support. And what, what we've seen actually is, um, you know, it's, it's, Probably shocking to hear, but even within the first few days of the tragedies, um, there was there were there were bombings across the border um, in Kurdish areas, in areas where people have been already displaced by the Turkish government. So, well, that's they haven't stopped their prioritisation of the war on Kurds, both yeah. you know in 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 the in in the Turkish territories, but also in Rojava and in in uh, in northern Iraq. They're continuing their war, and I understand that. Um, on the other hand, uh, the 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 Kurdish freedom fighters in 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 uh, in northern Iraq or in South Kurdistan have actually called a unilateral ceasefire um, because of the of the earthquake. Yeah, the Erdogan regime seems to be trying to dismiss all these. Um, Overwhelming criticisms of its failure to respond adequately as uh, some sort of disinformation campaign, and and I understand they're actually threatening to to take down the details of the people spreading this disinformation campaign. So the first few days, instead of taking heed of some of these criticisms and and, and these calls um, for for change and desperate pleas, what Erdogan did was take to national TV and actually really aggressively threaten, you know, those who he basically calls the enemy of the state, those who criticise um, their their response, and rightly so. That um, we also saw, I think, in the last few days, or at least that I that I know of, two Kurdish journalists, one from uh, a journalist from. News and a journalist from, uh, I think, Mesopotamia Agency were actually uh, taken into custody and arrested for taking footage of um, of some of those scenes in the Kurdish areas. Um, so it's it's yeah, like you said, the war on the Kurds has not stopped. Um, we, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing time and time again that no amount of human 
Kurdish human suffering um, is enough to, to, you know, satisfy the bloodlust of, of this regime. And in fact, you know, and especially because it's so close to the upcoming election, Erdogan and the, you know, AKP um, led government have done absolutely everything in their power to actually use this uh, to, you know, further, further entrench the Kurdish people and the populations. Um, they've made in the last, I think, day or so, they've made some attempts to kind of remedy their image because they see that there's a huge, huge wave of criticism, not just from the Kurdish populations, mm. but from, from all the Turkey and it's coming out yes. in the West now. So mm. what they've started doing to appease that is to, you know, and it's all, it's all a show, it's all a superficial kind of performance to put uh, to start putting out arrest warrants for the developers who've made these really, really shoddy buildings that are not up to code. Um, but it's really, really important to remember that, you know, these earthquakes happened in specific places that are very, very well known to be geolocated in places that are extremely prone to earthquakes of this magnitude. So they've known this is an inevitable occurrence for a very, very long time. Um, Erdogan's even been you know, taxing people has even been, um, instead of learning from the past, learning from the horrific, horrific tragedies of the past in terms of all the earthquakes that have happened, which we actually saw similar lack of responses and even humiliating, um, you know, tactics used by the government instead of learning from that and saying, actually, we need to prepare. Um, what they've done is, is, is exactly the opposite. So, uh, where they did put building codes in place, they haven't been enforced. And so instead of Erdogan taking some responsibility for actually his government enforcing those building codes, what he's doing is uh, at least televising or at least advertising that they're putting people in jail and they're putting people, uh, they're holding developers accountable, even though it's the incredibly, you know, it's a whole corrupt system and nobody, you know, it's been said no one can, no one can nail a screw into a building without permission first from the from the government, and we know that there's there's a huge interplay of um, AKP corrupt politics and and development. They go hand in hand. So I, I I hear they are even stopping aid from getting across border crossings. People who want to help from outside are not being allowed to bring the aid in. Is this is this happening? Um, is this happening in, in many places or is it a particular crossing? It's, it's happening in various places. It's also happening in Syria. So we've got video testimony from aid workers, from charity workers, saying that they've got truckloads of really, really vital aid that people have donated, that people have collected and coordinated, stopped at the border by AKP officials, basically telling them, you know, giving all sorts of bogus excuses, and we know, we know that they're completely false excuses. So stopping them, holding them basically to ransom there at the border when people are dying by the minute and are in critical need of, of, of those resources. This is also happening under Assad's regime where we've seen um, truckloads of aid being actually stopped. He's also demanding at the moment that aid, all aid um, resources be passed through him and his government and we know that they're not getting to some of those most crucially affected areas um, where, where you know, a lot of those populations are Kurdish, a lot of those communities have all also Arab and, and Christian, they've already been displaced at least, you know, one or two times. And a lot of that is tied directly to the Turkish occupation. So, you know, one of the things that is particularly kind of like kind of demonstrative of, of um, the the criminal negligence of Erdogan is that, 
you know, it's not for a lack of resources. So like I said, there's this, and you mentioned that there's all this aid ready to go to people mm. and he's stopping them at the border. The other fact to mention is, you know, Turkey has NATO's second largest army. They are incredibly resource rich where they want to be. So, you know, at a moment's notice, well within 24 hours notice, he can have a whole, you know, swathe mm. of army officials um, to attack anywhere he wants across the border to attack the Kurds. But for some reason, they cannot coordinate to get rescue teams where they're needed for their own citizens within their own um, within their own countries. And in fact, now I think one of the new horrors of the last 24 hours has been the video footage of army personnel marching through some of these communities that have been worst, worst affected um, in southeastern Turkey, in Bakurid, um, in in you know, in northern Kurdistan, not to help, but basically to intimidate. So they've got mm. soldiers marching for no other reason but to intimidate. They're not helping. The Kurdish yeah. communities uh, all around the world have been mobilizing to to try and help. And, and you're involved in the campaign here in Australia. And what are the things that um, um, other people in Australia should be doing uh, to to help to help help in this campaign? Look, I think, um, Peter, the most important thing is to recognise, like I've said, we cannot rely on the Turkish government and we cannot rely on any of the very many agencies that are that we're seeing advertised at the moment as places for donations to go to. We cannot rely on those because ultimately they are answerable to the state and they need permission from the state and we know that the state is blocking those from getting to people who need them most. Um, so the Kurdish community and other communities um, all around the diaspora, all through Kurdistan, are desperately trying to coordinate and collect as much resources as we possibly can and put them exactly where we know we can rely and trust on them to get to where they need to go. So one of the main, um, one of the main charities that we're, we're really, really putting our resources behind is Havasur or the Kurdish Red Crescent. They've been on, in operation for decades. They're very, very well trusted, really, really, um, well loved by, you know, Kurdish people all over. Kurdistan, um, they are there right now on the ground feeding people. We, we've got all the video testimony from, from all of that. So they really are Havasud. And they've got a, you can pay, um, you can donate by, by PayPal now as well, which mm-hmm. makes things a lot easier, but really, really urging people if they want to help, if they're able to, even if they think it's really small, every little bit helps because people are freezing, you know. The people who have survived the earthquakes are at imminent risk of death from from starvation, from from the freezing cold. And so we're really, really urging people. And if you cannot donate, if you're, you know, if you've got nothing to give, or even if it's a tiny amount, you can also feel and and be assured that you are helping by spreading the word as well. Um, What should we be asking of the Australian government to do? Is there is there um, is there a campaign that that is taking up this question? There is. So the the Kurdish Federation um, in Australia, I know, I know, especially are really, really working hard to press, um, press AFAD, press the Australian government. We've had multiple meetings. They've written to them. Um, they're urging very, very urgently to make sure that the aid, that any aid that we have um, pledged, and I think 
Albanese pledged recently um, $10 million uh, to aid both Syria and Turkey. What we're trying to do is really impress upon the government that we welcome any and all resources that's critically needed, but we need to make sure that they monitor where those resources go because we do not want them to, as we've seen in the past, you know, we have direct experience of this to go straight to the coffers of the government um, and, you know, not actually getting to the people who need them most. So we're really impressing upon the government at the moment. We need the resources, but you need to absolutely monitor and make sure they actually get to people on the ground. All right, and that was uh, Kurdish community emergency aid campaigner Zerubar Karimi speaking with uh, Peter Boyle from Green Left. And, yeah, you can listen to that. That's available at the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au. And the title of the article is Turkish Dictator Erdogan Weaponizes Earthquake Disaster Against Kurds. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio and we just wanted to finish today's show by talking a little bit about uh, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe. Yeah. And how he ain't that independent after yeah. all. Yeah, well, we won't be able to obviously go into kind of all the detail about this, but what I've kind of noticed in the mainstream media in the corp- and even on the ABC is there's a bit of a, there's almost a bit of a kind of like establishment. There's almost sort of like a bit of a slight rebel, a bit, yeah, basically Philip Law is basically in a lot of, um, a bit in the red in terms of the kind of attack, um, the criticism he's kind of receiving. Um, and of course, even the ALP, even see, um, somewhat ALP figures are sort of starting to be critical of him because essentially the Reserve Bank has essentially adopted this kind of policy of basically if we're going to have to deal with inflation, we have to basically keep increasing interest rates. And that's basically raising kind of a lot of kind of questions for people, especially with Philip Lawyer, because basically Philip Lawyer, he's a, and the RBA, they essentially like to present themselves as independent, but at the same time, Philip Lowe is was found to have been openly having a special private dinner with with some bankers, um, and then I think Zane pointed out to me that he was being interviewed recently, and um, he was like, you know, he's basically saying that you know we have to increase interest rates. We we basically our role is we have to control inflation because otherwise people will go broke and wealth inequality will get worse. Hmm. But then he was asked the question, well, what about the fact that these banks have recorded record profits while we're in this sort of cost of living crisis? And Philip Lowry's response was, oh, well, it's a good thing that banks are are making profits. Because we need strong financial institutions. And that is a very um, nonsensical statement because he's saying inflation is bad because it creates wealth inequality. And we don't like wealth inequality. And then two minutes later, he's saying, but huge record bank profits are good because we need... So inequality, ultimately, at its core, is about a huge share of the economy going to profits instead of going to wages. So when he's saying inequality is bad, at the core of that, surely, must be too much profit being sucked out of the economy and not enough being ploughed back into wages, that's bad because workers can't afford the the essentials. And then literally two minutes later, he's saying, but record bank profits are good. So he's he's saying record profits are bad, but also record profits are good. He's saying it's it's nonsensical. It, It makes no sense, the argument that he's putting forward. And if 
the Reserve Bank was truly independent, they would have the power not only to raise interest rates, which is a very blunt and ineffective weapon for combating price-driven inflation, which is what we have now, they would instead be able to say, all right, we're raising the corporate tax rate. There's a bunch of stimulus money that's floating around in the economy from the pandemic. All of these corporations are like hungry, hungry hippos. They're opening their prices up to try and capture as much of this money that's washing around in the economy. And we're going to suck some of that money back out of the economy through progressive taxation. And we're going to put the brakes on this price-driven inflation. If the Reserve Bank was truly independent, it would be able to do that. But of course, it's not independent because we live under neoliberalism and raising taxes is off the table, forbidden, even when that would be the single most effective way to tackle the inflation crisis at the moment. And that's simple Keynesian economics. In the post-war period, they were like, stimulus money is good to get the economy rebooted, but you've got to have progressive taxation because otherwise you're just pumping money into the economy and you're not you're not drawing it back out once it's played its role in, in stimulating aggregate demand. It's... It's played its role once it helps workers to be able to keep a roof over their head and afford food. Once that money then trickles upwards into the bank accounts of private corporations, it's no longer having the effect that, that, it was, in, that was intended when that stimulus money was pumped into the economy. So you've got to bring it back out of the economy with progressive taxation. They're not doing that right now. And that is the core of the problem. And you're not going to fix price-driven inflation by whacking workers with these interest rate rises that are pushing up mortgages and rents. It mm. is ridiculous and disgusting. Mm. And Philip Lowe is a, a snake oil merchant. Mm. And I also liked how he said that, oh, I know my job is unpopular, but I'm just doing my job. Like, I mean, seriously. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we, on that, on that cheerful note, um, we need to wrap it up for another week. You've been listening to Green F Radio and stick around because there's a bunch of cool stuff happening on 3CR. Uh, we've got Earth Matters, Left After Breakfast, Think Again, Jailbreak, Black and Deadly. It's all coming up today on 3CR. So stay tuned, stay radical. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings.